On today's show, a lot of heartburn over the proposed food tax increase. And the question, censure over impeachment. Representative Ben McAdams is on the censure train. Tune in Monday through Thursday, 9 to 11 for Dave and Dijanovic. I'm Scott Trout, CEO of the domestic litigation firm Cordell & Cordell. We help men deal with the life changes triggered by divorce, such as child custody and property division, among many others. But life changes also occur after divorce. These changes can make parts of your existing court order irrelevant or harder to follow. If you feel a modification to your court orders might be necessary, talk to us at Cordell & Cordell. We're a partner men can count on. Contact CordellCordell.com, 1065 East Hillsdale Boulevard, Suite 310, Foster City, California, 94404. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership. I'm Jess Larson. This is part two of our interview with John Havlick. But what I learned, it got me to be humble again. I definitely uh, checked my ego. and, And what I really learned is just by walking around and talking to people, you were, um, the things you learned were just invaluable. And, uh, and maybe you know, you're not getting a straight answer as it filters, as the word filters up and down the chain of command, you know. If you didn't listen to part one, please go back and, and hear about his Navy career, um, becoming a, an 06 captain in the Navy SEALs, uh, time at D- Development Group. And uh, John, as we were leaving off on the last episode, uh, we were talking about this idea of not taking the bait and and how to de-escalate a situation even when somebody gets in our face for no good reason. Um, and uh, as I was hearing your story about kind of letting people blow out their steam and uh, you know almost bringing a little fun into the conversation instead of instead of matching it and letting it escalate of well I'm going to get my boss and he's going to get his boss. Um, it made me think maybe this has something to do with the nickname coach. Can you can you talk about this or do you not want to? It's okay either way. No, no, I'm I'm good with it. I I the the story behind the nickname is I originally came in the Navy to uh coach swimming at the Naval Academy. And uh, when I was when I was at the academy, I had I was uh, I had never heard of the of what I, I didn't even know what a Navy SEAL was, and so I uh, quickly found out what it was, and and I did my two I did about two and a half years of coaching at the academy, and I guess I wanted to do something else, and when after I heard about the SEALs, I uh, applied for uh, commissioning via the Officer Candidate School, and after Officer Candidate School, I I went to uh, SEAL training, and my first day at SEAL training. Um, my leading petty officer, who is the senior enlisted guy for the class, he came up to me and he goes, uh, Ensign Havlick, uh, I th- hear I hear your nick. What did you do beforehand? And I said, Well, I was I was a coach at the Naval Academy. And he goes, Yeah, coach. We'll just keep calling you coach. Is that okay? And I said, Yeah, that's fine. So that uh, that nickname, I uh, got anointed that nickname the first day of SEAL training, and it carried me throughout my career 31 year 31 and a half years so nobody knows my name uh, and a very few people know my last name they just kind of know coach you know so I take that as very honorable and I was okay with it that's awesome so um for anybody who missed episode one can you tell us about give us the name of the book and and the premise of it one more time that's coming out yeah it's uh, it's called the leadership killer Reclaiming Humility in an Age of Arrogance. And the gist behind the book is uh, we, uh, we write about hubris or big ego as the single most lethal leadership flaw. 
and and we offer tips and uh, suggestions and stories, real life stories on hubris and how it hurts some people. And we try to offer strategies and tips on how to check your ego and control your ego and make sure you don't turn into a bad leader or an abusive leader. Yeah. Um, do you want to tell us maybe one of your favorite stories that's in the book? Um, I think the biggest, the biggest leadership thing I often said was when I was, I had an overseas, my first overseas tour, uh, at a boat unit, a special boat unit in uh, Panama. And I was the executive officer. So I was the number two guy below the commanding officer. And so I was in charge of the day-to-day operations of the unit. And I kept hearing people say that, uh, Leadership didn't know what was going on around the command, and I would hear that through the grapevine or hear the sa- the other sailors mention that. And so, what I what I made myself do was I would uh, every Friday we had this thing called a field day, and it was just a command cleanup before the weekend. And after the cleanup, I would walk around and I'd check for cleanliness and make sure it was done correctly. But I used that time. I I just made sure on the peripheral that it was clean, but I use that time to meet my people and, and learn their first names and which is hard for me because I'm terrible at names. And so learning, and it's easy to get away in the military because there's usually a rank associated and last name and your the last name is on a name tag on your uniform. So it doesn't matter if you know the person or not, you can just call them by their name and rank and get away with it. But I, I wanted to, learn the first names of everybody in my command. And that's like 200 plus people. And so, uh, and for SEALs, you know, normally associated with small units of maybe 16 to 40 people, 200's a big deal. So I, uh, about nine months it took me uh, to do it. And uh, I I use at the nine month mark, uh, the Navy changes uniforms twice a year. So we were, um, we were having a uniform inspection, haircut uniform inspection, and I made it a point to walk around each member of my command, shake their hand, and call them by their first name. And I remembered everybody but one person, and I was, I was standing in front of this one sailor, and I was totally embarrassed because I couldn't remember his first name. And he goes, that's okay, sir. My first name is so-and-so, and that's because I haven't been in trouble and been in your office, so you don't know my name. And I, I kind of laughed at that, and everybody around started laughing. And, and it turned out that this one sailor out of everybody out of this 200 turned out to be my sailor of the year. So he was my best sailor, and the one person I couldn't remember first name was my sailor of the year. So um, pretty funny story, at least to me. Uh, but I think what it, what I learned by learning everybody's first name is – I learned more about them. Uh, they became very, you know, I, I learned an awful lot about the command. And so since my sailors were on the deck plate doing the work, they knew the, the command climate. They knew the problems that I normally didn't get up to the head, the, you know, the headquarters. And so I use it as a time just to learn about people and learn about my unit and what I could do right, what I was doing right, what we were doing wrong, and how could we do better. So... You know, it's interesting um, kind of how much is packed into that for the rest of us in different kinds of organizations, because, you know, in our own versions of the headshed, wherever we work, 
there can be such temptation to just rely on the reports that come in and just trust that, you know, your senior leadership is, is meeting well with the mid-level leadership and that those supervisors are out there talking to the associates, the frontline staff, right? And yet, right. doesn't it, doesn't it go so far when, you know, the, the boss's boss or the boss's boss's boss comes down and learns your first name when you know they don't have to? Isn't that such a hearts and minds thing we can do in our own organizations? Well, I think that's, that's the biggest, after I got out and I came back in, I was very grateful to be back in and, you know, the story of kind of my rise and fall, it takes up two chapters of the book. I'm not going to tell you about it. You can buy it and read about it. But what I learned, it got me to be humble again. I definitely uh, checked my ego. And, and what I really learned is just by walking around and talking to people, you were, um, the things you learned were just invaluable and, uh, and maybe, you know, you're not getting a straight answer as it filters, as the word filters up and down the chain of command, you know? And, uh, and so when I talked to the people on the deck plates, you know, I got ground truth on what was going on around the command, what was going right, what was wrong, you know, especially if folks were having trouble, especially overseas, a lot of pressures on everybody and families, individuals that not used to being overseas. And um, so if people were having problems or families were having problems, you could kind of get a heads up and start addressing it and trying to fix it or, you know, alleviate the problems. And so I, I found the best thing I could ever do was I had to force myself to push myself away from the desk and just get out and walk around and talk to people and uh, shake their hand, look them in the eye. You know, don't take a lot of time, but enough that, you know, you're, you're relating to them one-on-one. And, and I think it's so invaluable to leaders that if they have that opportunity to do that, that, you know, they'll really get more, they'll get more out of the people that work for them. And because the people that work for them know that you care. And I think by learning their first name, especially in the military, I, 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 it was invaluable to me. So uh, I tried to do it every subsequent uh, tour that I was assigned to. No, it is definitely one thing I admire about your community is, you know, having, having worked with a a number of different conventional units across DOD um, as, as well as uh, in the special operations forces community. um, I, I don't know if you feel this way, but in some ways I feel like, um, the more elite the unit, the more there is a um, almost a flipping of the leadership triangle of like, instead of, um, I just feel like there's almost more of like a servant leader approach sometimes of um, where you see, you know, commanders and individuals willing to train their people better so that they can trust the boots on the ground. And then they do trust the boots on the ground more. And, and instead of all decisions being had to send back to headquarters to let us know what the next move is, there there becomes more and more faith in those frontline folks who then start living up to the faith of of making wise decisions in in high intensity situations. Do you see it that way as well, or, or do you see it differently? I think the beauty of the seals that what I really loved was, um, and it started in training and as your class whittled down from a large number you go through hell week uh you know the guys drop out or get hurt and get rolled back and you know we started with about 112 guys in the first day of training and we graduated 22 
six months later, 18 from the original class. And so when you whittle down to that small n number and you're going through everything you're doing every day, um, the intensity and, um, you know, you become very familiar with the guys because really SEAL training is the only training where officers enlisted go through together. And so if you try to maintain that rank structure, um, it's not well received, especially when you need something done. And that's what I kind of felt about the, the SEALs, which was great. And in special forces is because of the nature of the work and the small unit cohesion that uh, sometimes, um, although the rank structure is respected and everybody knows you're an officer and you make the ultimate final decision, what I think the beauty was is enlisted and officers interact and they share ideas and they communicate because really the success of the mission relies so much on on the guys putting, you know, the work, um, doing all the hard work, you know, and when I, somebody packed, a listed guy packed my parachute, I got to rely on him to make sure he packs my pro parachute <laughs> properly, uh, you know, and so there's a little, there's a bond and there's just a natural uh, respect that you've gone through all this training and they're super smart. They're often smarter than you are. And if you don't take advantage of what they can offer to you, you're just, you're foolish. And so that's what I really liked about the SEALs, the close-knit cohesion of the units and the interaction with the guys. So if you had advice for, um, if you had advice for other leaders out there who are realizing, man, I come from, you know, I come from an organization where, you know, management are the ones who think and frontline staff are the ones who do, you know, and we really separate that. But I, I want to become more of an organization where, you know, we do trust the ground truth and we do, you know, everybody gets to bring their brain to work. It's not the thinkers and the doers. Um, if they want to start building new habits, do you, do you have advice for folks who want to, you know, they want to maybe uh, embrace that more? Yeah, we offer, uh, like I said, throughout the book, we offer tips on how to be a more effective, humble leader. And I think three things really at least help me. Um, towards mission accomplishment, better unit interaction was as a leader, you know, you, you can't be afraid to ask questions, you know, and because you don't know everything. And if you try to lead with that, you're just, you're going to end up in mission failure. So, you know, it's, it's okay to ask questions and show people that you don't know everything because it makes you human. And, uh, and people respond to that. They want to help. They want Ultimately, they have a vested interest in the success of the organization or the command, and they want to participate. They want to help out. So it's okay as a leader to ask questions. The second thing we say is, uh, you know, when I mentioned my time in Panama, is I, I took time to go down and meet my people. And, and taking time, normally uh, folks in the higher levels in the C-ring, uh, their time is pretty compressed with meetings and travel and things like that. And, and when the people see that they take that time to come down and meet them and talk with them, I think it sends a great message, uh, how much the leaders leadership cares for those individuals. And then the last thing is, you know, th say thank you and, uh, and, and say it a lot and be sincere when you offer it. Cause sometimes leaders kind of just uh, do the phony, Oh, thank you. And all that. But I think when you say thank you sincerely, and do it often that people 
like that. They like to know that they've done a good job and be rewarded for it, with even with a simple thank you. And uh, you get a lot more out of your people. So those are the three tips that I would offer. You know, that third one, it sounds so simple, yet, um, you know, if you read some of the research out there, at least in in America, corporate America, um, we, we like, really don't have great stats as leaders when it comes to that. Like, if we were a baseball card, we don't have good stats. Like, right. the research says that we definitely get on people's case when they make a mistake, um, but when it comes to them doing something right, it's almost like a well, yeah, that's their job, you know? Yeah. Um, can you talk about just, just any flavor to that or somebody who said thank you to you on your, your uh, career, somebody that you look up to that, that actually you felt the genuine appreciation from one of your leaders? Um, or no, I, 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 there's been a, just a couple instances, you know, I, I, I don't try to, I, I say you, you want to, I guess what the last point about saying thank you is, and you don't want to do it all the time because then it kind of becomes phony. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But there are certain right times when public acknowledgement of a good job is very, is vitally important, you know? And so the right times, you know, like in, in the military, there's, uh, you may say, uh, guys went on a good deployment and you welcome them back and, you know, say thank you for the time. And, or you say thank you to the families when you have a family day that, because when the guys leave and go overseas, uh, they're stuck back here in the States taking care of all the problems, you know? And, and so when you get those opportunities to publicly thank people for their support and making, because ultimately they make you look good or they can make you look bad too. So I think there's a right time to say thank you and do it sincerely. Um, I don't remember any real leaders that uh, thanked me for anything I did. I do remember a couple uh, couple guys throughout my career that I worked for that were junior to me, and uh, I kind of inspired them to either go into the SEALs or not quit um, or try something that uh, wasn't um, uh, comfortable, that they hadn't been comfortable with, and it was clearly – and I, I – Several times that I've spoken since I've gotten out and I, I do these corporate uh, presentations, I've gotten a lot of positive feedback afterwards, even maybe a year or two down the line where saying, hey, I remember you bringing this up, your point, and I, I use this and I use it every day. And, and, and that's kind of very satisfying that, you know, sometimes out of, out of the, totally out of the blue that uh, you, you see somebody and they, they thank you for you know, what you said or what you offered up to him. So, yeah. Well, um, can, can you tell us just a little bit about this story off your website about, uh, you know, I think it's Tuesday night of hell week and you went up to your proctor and, and, uh, you're thinking about ringing the bell and said something about, you know, you're not sure you're cut out for the seal stuff and, and what your proctor responded back to you. Yeah. Well, I mean, you're just going to steal my 32nd decision story that I get, paid, <laughs> I get paid big money for but so, so but what, it, what the gist was uh yeah it was tuesday night we hadn't been asleep yet and we'd been up about 48 hours and uh we had just spent about eight hours in a mud pit just doing things you know and uh we 
we were going to our first scheduled um, sleep period. And, uh, and throughout Hell Week, um, you, you get about, they say about four hours of sleep throughout the week. And it's usually in like 15 minute increments. But so uh, we were going towards our first one. And, and uh, I remember uh, just kind of kind of relooking what I was doing this for, you know, that the kind of the reality of uh, SEAL training hit me square in the face, you know, and I started doubting myself and doubting my desire to, uh, to continue. And so I mentioned to uh, another classmate of mine in my boat crew that I was thinking of quitting. And, uh, and we went to our, <coughs> excuse me, and I, we went to our little layup uh, where we were going to sleep and uh, I had just fallen asleep and uh, my hear this Ensign Havlick get over here and and I was like you know who the hell is waking me up now you know I was kind of upset because I hadn't slept in 48 hours and and now this guy wants to talk to me so it was my proctor uh, and the proctor is another SEAL instructor who was kind of the mediator between the training staff and your class and uh, so he uh, he was standing in front of the fire, and I and he goes, Ensign Havoc, I hear you want to quit. And I said, uh, Well, I'm thinking about it. And uh, and we called this guy Instructor Psycho because uh, <laughs> his eyes would light up, you know. And and he and this was too about two thirty in the morning. I remember this dark and just the fire in the background. And he's, I swear to God, he got right in my face and his eyes just lit up and I could just feel him burning down to my soul, you know? And he said, uh, Ensign Havlick, you're an officer. Stop thinking about yourself and stop, start thinking about your men. And I, and he goes, you don't want to quit. And he says, just start thinking about your men. And I'm standing there and and I started mumbling something and he just told me to shut up. And he said, and then he, he said, I'm going to go to, uh, I'm going to go over here to the fire. I'm going to get a cup of coffee. And when I come back, I want your decision. And he's walking away. He turns around and he says, but don't make a decision in 30 seconds that you'll regret the rest of your life. And, uh, he went and got his coffee and he came back and he said, what's your decision? And I said, I'm in, uh, I'm ready to go back. And he goes, okay, let's never talk about this again. And we never did. And it changed my whole attitude. And and it was vitally important. It was a good attitude adjustment for me because then as as an officer, you really have to start thinking about your men, making sure they're okay, doing everything they can, making sure they're good to go instead of yourself. And so that was, that was a pretty important moment for me and probably the best decision I've ever made in my life. You know what I kind of love about that story is, um, so often we hear about, you know, somebody taking the time to really care about us and, and connect with us at a human level, learn our learn our first name, you know, these kind of humble leader type of things, servant leader type of things. And there can be the impression that those all need to be like soft interactions, you know? And uh, I, I, I don't know, I guess what's interesting there is you know, he's telling you to shut up. He's getting in your face. And yet it's, it's not for him. It's not out of anger. It's, it's what he felt like the right thing for you was. And, uh, I think sometimes we can, 
we can limit ourselves in thinking what it means to take care of people that it all's, you know, puppies and roses and, right. uh, you know, the right thing for people is the right thing for people. It doesn't necessarily have to come with a hug, right? Well, I think, well, there were certain, there were certainly no hugs involved in this incident, but, uh, I think what was important about the whole thing when I, and I didn't really think about this till God, years later actually was, uh, you know, hell week is the fourth week of training. And so you're still very new, still very fresh and, uh, and guys are dropping all the time and quitting and, and, you know, most of your instructors are enlisted personnel and, uh, you know, when an officer quits, you know, they, 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 they work hard officers really hard in training and, because the expectation is you're going to be a leader and you may work with these guys later on down the road in the teams. And so if somebody wants to quit then usually the, the standard operating procedure was, is that guys just quit and they let them do it. And I, when I think back on the whole incident, I mean, it clearly, you know, this guy saw something in me that, uh, that I didn't see that would be beneficial in the long run into the seals. And, kind of gave me a second chance, you know, to kind of rethink what I was doing and, hey, maybe and put a little maybe in uh, confidence back into myself that I was, you know, having some self-doubts that, hey, I have the traits, I have the qualities that the SEALs are looking for. And then just if you start thinking about your men, you know, all your pain and all your aggravation and your cold and everything else will go away and and, and you're, you'll make it. And I think I think that was very effective because they could have easily just let me quit. So, yeah. So I think it was a great learning experience for me. Like I said, uh, a great opportunity these guys don't normally do and probably the best decision I ever made in my life. Well, to me, I, I look at it, you know, as a, as a former CEO of a private equity fund, right? We're always looking for efficiencies and, and what's the maximum output for the input you put in, right? And right. You, you think about him willing to kind of, you know, like take that extra time and take that extra attention. And our country got another three decades of service from you, who was obviously someone who could do it. I mean, you made it all the way into development group, right? Right, right, and, right. And you think about the benefit to the teams, to the to our military, to our entire country of somebody with your skill set that we or, or at least potential at that point, right? Um, that was, you know, right there on the fence and and essentially like the benefit to the rest of us of three decades of your service by him taking that extra time at a personal level with you, right? Yeah, and especially, like I said, his personality. He was, uh, you know, coming from him, uh, like I said, you know, I was only four weeks into the whole training thing and you know hell week starts becoming a blur so he probably caught me at the right moment you know when I was still functional and still had some mental aptitude going but uh you know for that individual to take that time to kind of make give me the opportunity to rethink um my future yeah I'm always very grateful to him and uh for the opera and then all the opportunities that opened up by finishing seal training and, and going on and making a career of it was it's what's been the best thing I have ever done. So I'm very grateful to that individual for giving me that opportunity. That's great. Well, listen, um, 
besides people coming to coachhavlik.com, which is H-A-V-L-I-K, right. um, tell us about, can they pre-register for the book somewhere? Should they just watch for it on Amazon? What's, what's uh, people who want to get access to the book? Well, you can go on the website, www.leadershipkiller.com, and uh, the book is available for pre-order, both uh, via uh, Kindle or, or hard copy if you want to get it. Uh, the official release date is 30 October, so uh, can't get the book just yet, but uh, I highly encourage it. I think it's a, uh, it's a book um, that's relevant for today. It, uh, if it, it talks about a, a topic that uh, needs to be addressed, and I think it's a good read for leaders at all levels, whether you're beginning or you're super successful, and maybe you just maybe you use it as a tool to kind of you know rethink what you're doing and are you doing the right stuff or maybe I need to function, stop doing this, go to another area. So, um, yep, leadershipkiller.com and uh, 30 October, and I encourage everyone to, uh, of course, buy the book or, you know, the, the iPad or the, uh, the e-book, and, and really excited about uh, the book release and, and what it has to offer, because it's, it's not just, a, it's not a preachy book, it comes from real life stories, my share, my own, which I've never shared with anyone before. You know, of what I did right and what I did wrong and how my hubris uh, got in my way and uh, how I had to recover and what I learned from it. So if anything, you know, it's, a, it's good. I offer that up as a lesson learned to anybody, uh, anybody who wants to be a leader. So love it. Well, thanks. Thanks uh, for coming on the show. All right, Jess. Thanks very much. I appreciate it. And hopefully uh, I did a good job. <laughs> yeah, that's great. <laughs> At Farmers Insurance, we have concrete evidence that parking under an industrial cement mixer, that's just asking for trouble. Seen it? Covered it. Click for more. We are farmers. Bum, 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 bum. Underwritten by Farmers Truck Fire Insurance, Exchanges and Affiliates. Products not available in every state.